As Jerry said, we begin a new series. It's only six weeks. Uh, we're calling it Flourish, and that's exactly what the Lord has um, given us the capacity to do in Jesus Christ, to flourish, to understand our identity uh, being in Him alone. Even secular psychologists have been able to determine that two basic psychological needs for every one of us to love and be loved and have a sense of worth. And both of those needs are met only completely by one source. And so let's turn together to Genesis, beginning uh, the beginning book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, and then we'll read uh, down into chapter 2. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Verse 18, chapter 2, then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not a, found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Li Lang Wang is a Chinese evangelist who has preached to well over 10 million people. He was asked one time, what was the greatest influence on your preaching? And he said, my mother. And then he went on, when I was a boy, I used to get into trouble. And my mother tried to discipline me with a stick. Every time she saw me doing something bad, she'd chase me with a stick, but I was fast. And I'd always outrun her. Then finally one day she stopped running and I looked back and she had taken the stick and she began to beat her arms until they bled. And as she beat her arms she said, I can't believe that I would have a child like you so disobedient. And Wang said, as soon as I saw my mother whacking her arms and bleeding, I stopped and I ran to her and I fell at her knees and I said, Mama, don't do that anymore. From that day on, my mother never had a discipline problem. Anytime I thought about going my own way or doing my own thing, I thought about my mother's arms. For years in Hollywood, people marveled at Charlie Chaplin. When he died in 1977, people began to review his life, and one of the things that people couldn't understand is how Charlie Chaplin could be a socialist. But you see, in order to understand how Charlie Chaplin was a socialist, you have to understand his past. 
He's one of the luminaries, one of the beginners of, of Hollywood, and he made Hollywood in many respects what it is today. He started at age nine in vaudeville. He was on stage, and every time he worked, he got paid. And every time he pay, got paid, he and his brother would ride over to the, what was called the insane asylum, where his mother, who was, even though they didn't diagnose this as that, bipolar, he and his brother would be able to have enough money to pay to take her home with them. And as long as he paid every week, they could have their mother. But whenever Charlie didn't work and wasn't paid, his mother would have to go back to see and understand why Charlie Chaplin was a socialist. You have to understand that. Remember Billy Sunday? I mean, you don't remember him, but you know that name. <laughs> Before Billy Graham, there was Billy Sunday. People marveled at this man. He had a fourth grade education, yet as he preached, people would hang on his every word. Even men of intellect and privilege would hang on his every word. You know the reason? Because they never heard anybody speak with such love and compassion like they did Billy Sunday. To understand Billy Sunday, you have to understand his story. <clears throat> and that story happens when his mother is pregnant with him. When she's six months pregnant, her husband dies in the Civil War. When Billy's six and his brother's eight, his mother took them to their first hotel room. And the next morning, she wakes them up with tears in her eyes, and Billy says, Mama, what's wrong? And she said, I don't have enough money to raise you. I love you, I want you never to forget that, but I've got to put you on a train for Glenwood, and there you're going to live in an orphanage. And with that, she gave him a kiss and she gave him a ticket and put him on the train to Glenwood. About halfway there, they're hungry and so they get off the train at one stop and they go to a restaurant and they, they order food and the woman says, here's what it's going to cost. And they turn their pockets inside out and say, Madam, we don't have any money because our daddy died in the war. She starts crying and said, my husband died in that war. I'll feed you. After an hour, they get back on the train, and after a half hour, the conductor comes around looking for tickets. When they hand him their tickets, he said, these don't go as far as Glenwood. I'm going to have to put you off the train. Billy starts crying. He said, don't put us off the train because we have no daddy. My, our daddy died in the Civil War. The conductor said, I fought in that war. I'll not put you off that train. Not only did he take them all the way to Glenwood, he took them by their, his hand and he led them all the way to that orphanage. And for the next 10 years, he was the only person who would come and visit them. To see where his love and compassion come from, you have to understand his story. 59 years ago, Eric Erickson famous psychologist coined a term identity crisis and almost everyone in this room has heard that term an identity crisis Erickson defined it an identity crisis is a period of time in your life when you're uncertain and confused about your own identity 
and even the goals of your life become blurred. It's a time when you ask, who am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? What's my purpose? And Erickson said, now that crisis can come once, or it can come many times. It can come as a teenager. It can come as a 20-year-old. It can come as an 80-year-old. In fact, the identity crisis is so prevalent and God understands it so well that the Bible is full of answers to the question, who am I and what am I doing? And God begins answering the question in Genesis chapter 1. Someone has said, if you want to know where you're going, you've got to find out where you've been. That's why the Bible doesn't start with once upon a time. It's not random, it's not a uh, big bang, it's not some renegade cell. Instead, Genesis declares that out of nothing, God creates something and then He shapes it by the word of His mouth. But you know what's remarkable about the creation? God said, let there be light, and there was light. And every successive day is remarkable, but most remarkable of all is what happens on day six. When the Lord says, let us make man in our own image and likeness. And for centuries, people have wondered, what does the us mean? What's let us? Let us who? Well, some back in the middle... Uh, centuries of the Reformation, 18th century or so, they began to talk about the us, meaning the royal we. God's just using an expression, the royal we. But then you look through the balance of Scripture, you don't see the royal we anywhere. Others say, no, it's an early reference to the Trinity. Um, you know, he's talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But interestingly, it's not until you get to the Gospels that you really see the Trinity fleshed out. There are a lot of theories as to what God means when He says, let us make man in our image and likeness. But the best theory is this. God is changing His work. He is now on the sixth day putting into practice or place all the fullness of His character into this creative act. Interesting. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord said, let there be light. No talk of us. Verse 14, He says, let there be the sun and the moon and the stars of the heavens, and yet there's no mention of us. In verse 24, He says, let there be the beasts of the field, but there's no mention of us. It isn't until what is created is made in His own likeness and image that God says, let us. God uses the intensive plural to signify the fullness of His power and His glory. When the early Christians read those words, let us make man in our own image and likeness, they saw image and likeness as synonyms. Rather than tracing their roots to some dead relative or some single-celled organism, they trace their roots to the Creator. 
In the Middle Ages, they elaborated and they said the image of God means that we are created with a mind and a will. Later, Christians began to be unsatisfied with that. And they said there's more than a mind and a will. The image and likeness of God involves a spirit and a soul. After all, the Bible says he breathed into the dust. And man became a living soul. So mind, will, spirit, soul. If that's all you think the image of God is, you're not reading carefully enough. What God tells us in this first chapter are three other aspects of that image. So let's look at it. First of all, to be made in the image and likeness of God means that you have a reflection. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our likeness an image. In Psalm 8, David says, ask us an important question. When I consider the heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set into place, what is man that you're mindful of him? Do you understand what he's asking? When I think of all this glorious stuff God has made, what's man that you would be mindful of him? Now that's the question David asks, and it's a very good question. It's the same question that is at the foundation of the identity crisis. Who am I? Why do I matter? Why am I here? But David doesn't just ask the question, he gives the answer. You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Now think of that. There's only one person in the entire Bible who is said to be full of glory and honor. <clears throat> That's the Lord Himself. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, what the writer is telling us is that when God created the creation by His glory and honor, He doesn't share His glory and honor with anyone except us. Not the fish, not the beasts of the field, not the stars of the heavens. There is only one who's made in the image and likeness of God, meaning we have a glory and an honor that He shares with us. We have a reflection. We look like Him. Second, He makes us with a responsibility. Let us make man in our image and likeness and let him have dominion. Now others translate that word rule, and yet rule implies an independence. The word here is radah in Hebrew. It literally means to have dominion. And when you search for a definition of dominion, all you have to do is go back in the first verses of chapter 1 and see it at work. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. So what does God do? He has dominion. He prevails against the void and He shapes it. In other words, He brings order out of that which is shapeless. He asserts His dominion. He prevails against the, or, against the void and He brings about an order. There's an old preacher story I've mentioned before. Dr. Gerstner hated it. John Gershner said, if anybody, any of your students ever use this illustration in my class, I'm going to flunk you. The story goes like this. A man's driving in the wilds of West Virginia. Everything, there's weeds everywhere. It's ugly. And all of a sudden, he rounds a corner and he sees this farm. 
and this farm has painted fences, mown uh, fields, the gar beautiful gardens are out an immaculate sprawling house. He can't believe it. And he stops, and as he's gazing at this beautiful bucolic view, he sees a man, and he says, that's got to be the farmer. And so he says to the guy, you know, the Lord has really blessed you with a beautiful farm. And the man said, yeah, but you should have seen it when he had it all by himself. <laughs> now, Gershner hated that story. And he said, if you ever use it, I'll flunk you. Why? Because it reeks of independence. It reeks of self-sufficiency. There's only one who has intrinsic dominion, and that's God. And yet the dominion He gives us is derived from Him. It's not tyranny, it's destiny. God says, I didn't just give you a mind and a will and a soul and a spirit and a reflection. I gave you a responsibility. And the responsibility is that you are to act as I do. You are to bring order out of voids. And you do that by depending on me. And then third and finally, notice the relationship. So God created them in His own image and likeness. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Now, it's an amazing thing. When most people read this verse, and then they go over to chapter 2, and they read 18 through 25 that we read earlier, they always think about gender or about marriage. Maybe they think about procreation. But when you do that, and that's all you see in this verse, you're missing the essence of what God is saying about Himself. I have a friend named Dino. In fact, he's my neighbor. I mean, I love Dino. He's an artist. His paintings are incredible. They're large and they're... Amazing, and sometimes I go over and see him, and occasionally he'll bring one over and show me what he just finished. And I remember years ago I said to Dino, where do you get this stuff? I mean, where, how, do you, how do you get the ideas? I mean, how do you decide the shapes and the colors? And I'll never forget what he said. I don't know, they just come out of me. I don't know, they just come out of me. Now that's what God's saying in this verse. Where does male and female come from? What gave him that idea? The text tells us. From him. You see, when God creates us male and female, it's re revealing the totality of his being. God has been, is, and forever will be in relationship with himself. C.S. Lewis calls it a dance. The reason God creates us male and female is because that reflects the totality of His being. God is in relationship with Himself. Listen to what Isaiah says. As a mother comforts her child, so the Lord comforts Israel. The biblical name for God, El Shaddai, is actually a, plural, is actually a feminine description of God. You know what the Hebrews said? God is a father who acts like a mother. In Greek, the name for the Holy Spirit is in the feminine gender, pneumata. You see, when God creates a male and female, He's 
not only revealing the totality of his being, he's also calling them into relationship, not just with each other, but with him. I mean, how do we miss that? When it says God created the male and female, not only is it an expression of who God is, it also is an expression of his intent for us to be in relationship with him. When I was a teenager, an evangelist came to our church, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, church, would you understand me if I told you that we, were, we serve a lonely God? Would you understand me if I told you that we serve a lonely God? You know, it was only a few years later I learned that was a lie. God's not lonely. When God creates us male and female, it's not because He's lonely. He's totally satisfied in Himself. He creates us male and female so that we might know the love and joy that comes from being in a relationship with not only the God of the universe, but with each other. He creates us as sons and daughters. He creates us to be sons and daughters. So when Eric Erickson speaks of an identity crisis, he's hitting the heart of the matter. Who am I? Where am I going? What am I doing? Those are questions you can find yourself asking all the time. You can forget the answers. And there's only one place to remember the answer, and that's at the cross. Because at the cross, we not only see a perfect reflection of God's glory, we see the totality of it. There's the place that our identity is revealed and is sealed. That's the place where He stamps us as His own. Now the Bible's clear. Not everyone is a child of God. Everyone's a creation of God, but the way we become children of God is through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. If you're a Christian, that's who He's made you. So think of it. In creation, He made you to reflect Himself. He made you to assume responsibility. He made you to be in a loving relationship with Him and with others. And it's only at the cross that He restores that image. You know how He does it? The painter joined the painting. And by joining the painting, Jesus Christ made you a masterpiece for His glory. He didn't design you to wander. He didn't design you to do your own thing. He didn't design you to be self-sufficient. He designed you to flourish. He designed you to bear fruit for His kingdom. He designed you to get your eyes off yourself and onto Him to see what He's doing and then to join Him. And there's only one place to remember that clearly. And that's at His table. And so this morning, we're going to have the elders on either side of the worship space. We invite you to come as the Lord leads you to His table. The Bible says on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He lifted the bread and He broke it, saying, this is my body. It's broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he lifted the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth my death 
and all that it means until I come again. Then he said to all of them, drink it. At the cross, Jesus makes clear God's original intent, and that is that we would know him, that we would glorify him, that we would praise him, and he would continue to reflect his presence in our lives. Because there are most people in this world don't have that relationship yet. So we invite you to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these elements. We pray that you'd set them aside from a common to a sacred purpose. We pray that as we eat and drink, we might eat and drink experiencing your grace and refreshment. Lord, we desire to flourish for your glory. We pray that this meal would enable us to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.